Well, first of all, let me say an introduction, uh, a few remarks. I was very encouraged by the questions that were submitted because they are all evidence of the fact that, if nothing else, you've been thinking about heaven over the last eight weeks, and that has encouraged me. Uh, And the questions are very insightful. And because as we've gone along, we've answered a lot of obvious questions that most people ask, like, well, we know one another in heaven and so on. Because of the fact that we've answered those hopefully satisfactorily, there have been created a whole new layer of questions. And the more questions we sought to answer, it seemed the more questions that were arising in our hearts and minds. And so we're seeing the fruit of that and some of the questions I could never have anticipated. Now, a little caveat, a note of caution before I embark upon these questions tonight. There are some things about heaven that we can be dogmatic about. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 8 that it is to be absent from the body for the believer to die and be present with the Lord. However, most of the questions that are asked and the answers that are given about heaven, we can't be dogmatic about. We can't be absolutely sure. And I'll I'll say that this evening when I'm answering questions, uh, when we cannot know possibly for sure. But we can surmise Uh, from some scriptures that God has given to us. And there are some rational speculations that are not unwarranted that we can make derivative from portions of the word of God. But I want to air this word of warning. Don't take everything that I say tonight dogmatically. And please do not get upset if you don't see it the way I portray it this evening. Uh, Be like the Bereans and search the scriptures whether these things are so. Now, I want to lay a foundation for all I say tonight very quickly and for any questions that we seek to answer. The first is this. Keep in mind the things that we are sure of. Please don't miss that. For there is a lifetime of rejoicing and satisfaction in what we know. Philippians 1.23, that whatever heaven is, whatever our questions are, Paul says it is better by far, Psalm 16:11, that at God's right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And whatever will be, and whatever further questions you're left with tonight, unanswered or answered unsatisfactorily, remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 17:15: I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Whatever it will be, You'll be satisfied, and it will be beyond anything that you could ever have wanted. And then the second foundation I want you, please, to lay before we answer these questions is whatever difficulties and problems and questions we have, we need to realize that they are not difficulties and problems to God. Nothing is a problem to God. And therefore, you ought not to let any question about heaven bother you. Don't let anything said tonight bother you. Jeremiah 32 and verse 27 says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And I was reading recently in the Nativity story in Luke chapter 1 and in verse 37 concerning the virgin conception, which men think impossible. And God says, For with God nothing shall be impossible. 
So whatever problems and questions we have, they're not problems or difficulties to God. They'll all be ironed out in the end. Now, it is not possible for me tonight to answer all the questions. You would know that right away, the questions that I have been given. And some of the questions that were submitted were not specific to the subject of heaven, so I apologize. I've had to leave those out uh, for obvious reasons. And if your question isn't answered tonight, I, I also apologize. And maybe if we've time tonight afterwards, you might want to wait behind and I'll try and answer them personally if I can. Now, I want to split these questions into four categories and the answers. The first category will be those that we do not know the answer to or cannot know the answer to. The second category uh, are questions that I've already answered in the series and maybe you weren't here that particular night, and I'll try maybe to answer those that, that, that have difficulties with perhaps some of the explanations that I've given over the past weeks. The third uh, category are different questions, but having the same answer. So the question has come in several different forms, but it's the same answer to them all. And so I've tried to clump a few questions together to get your value for money tonight. And uh, then fourth, Fourthly, there is a final section on separate questions that are unrelated. And some of these questions we'll be able to answer quickly, and uh, some will need more time. So let's see how far we get this evening. First question for our consideration, and this is one I think we can't really know the answer to. Do you think that our earthly occupations will have any bearing on what we will do in heaven? Well, I don't know whether they will or not. I suppose it will depend on your occupation. It might have. If you're an undertaker or a doctor, I can say absolutely for sure that uh, you'll have nothing to do in heaven according to the trade that you had here on earth. But maybe if you're a gardener or an engineer, there might be something for you to do up in glory. But uh, we can't be sure of these things. Now, uh, we've been talking quite a lot about heaven at home because of the subject and because of so many whom we love who have gone to be there and even folk in the church who are entering that place as we speak. And uh, Lydia, my five-year-old daughter, it's amazing the questions that children can ask you on these eternal truths. Along with asking recently, are there any birthdays in heaven? She asked, uh, and that's a good question, and I can't answer that one. She asked, do people pray in heaven? And does God turn around when he hears them pray? How would you answer that one? And there was another question came in the box that was very similar. Can the saved dead continue to ask God for things that they had been praying for on earth? E.g., can they still make requests for people for whom their prayers had not been answered during their time on earth? Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. And this is a portion of scripture that we looked at already on a previous night. And we have here the souls of dead martyrs who have been slain and they're under the altar and they're crying unto God, it says. And my interpretation of this passage is that they are in heaven and that is the intermediate heaven at present where the dead saved go. And they are there and it says, verse 10, they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth. So it appears at least that some folk who have died in Christ, these martyrs, are praying. 
And here they are praying specifically for vengeance and God's righteousness to be displayed against those who persecuted them and took their lives. And ultimately that is prayer for God's judgment and redemptive plan to be fulfilled. So this prayer of those who we believe are in heaven, certainly they're the sea of dead, it fits in with what is being decreed by God in heaven and what is being executed in his plan of redemption and judgment on the earth. And also, I think you'll agree, hopefully there's an element of solidarity here with these dead martyrs who are praying. Uh, Solidarity, that is, with suffering saints who are still suffering on the earth. For the judgment that they're looking God to give their persecutors, their persecutors are still persecuting the living saints of God who are striving in the kingdom. So, these martyrs are aware that they have been martyred, And they are aware that others are still being persecuted. And so they are praying in heaven according to the knowledge that they have. Now, they're not the only ones that we know pray in heaven. Christ is at the moment praying for us in heaven as our great high priest. And so it's reasonable to assume that we will pray more in heaven than on the earth. And I remember preaching on prayer on at least one occasion and saying you need to pray all you can now because when you die and go to heaven, you'll not be able to pray anymore. And that was a lot of nonsense. And uh, some of you know I talk a lot of nonsense from time to time. But uh, the fact of the matter is, how, how will we talk to God? How will we commune with God in heaven, in his immediate presence, other than prayer? Now, it will be a more direct communication and dialogue, of course, but is that not prayer? We find praise and worship throughout the book of the Revelation, which could also be categorized as prayer. But from the scant information we have, any prayer that is found in heaven seems to be related to God's plan and purpose and redemption through the church. And that's interesting. For you remember the Lord Jesus in John 17 said, I pray for them, that is the church. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. So what I'm saying is we can't really know. But we know that these martyrs are praying for God's vengeance and the fulfillment of God's righteousness in the earth. We know that Christ is praying. But there is nothing to suggest that people in heaven would be praying concerning unanswered prayer on the earth. In fact, I feel personally it's unlikely. Now, our next question is, if no marriage, and this is the second category of our question questions, that is those that I sought to answer in previous weeks, but maybe the answer wasn't satisfactory for some, I'll try and uh, uh, answer a, a bit a bit more satisfactorily tonight. If no marriage is in heaven and our relationship with each other is better by far, what about people who have married twice? As I said, if you want to get the tape and study five, will we know one another in heaven and how will we relate to one another? Do do that. Indeed, all the series is available uh, as soon as we can get them run off if you want to order those. But in Matthew 22, of course, uh, verse 23 following, the Lord Jesus in answer to the Pharisees uh, uh, and also the Sadducees uh, said that there would be no marriage in heaven. No marriage in heaven. So as an institution, marriage will cease. 
And the reason we gave for that in our study number five was that as Ephesians 5 teaches us, Paul shows that marriage is a shadow of the unification of Christ as the bridegroom and his bride, the church, in heaven. So it is an echo of the great redemption story. It's a signpost. And once we get to our final destination, the, the shadow and the signpost is not necessary anymore. But I did allude to the fact that our relationship will carry on. Well, though we won't be married, everything that we've known will be better and greater. Now, our problem is that we cannot conceive how we could be happy if two spouses whom we were married to on the earth were in heaven. And the reason why we can't conceive of being happy with that scenario is that we wouldn't be happy with it down here on earth. Isn't that right? Now, there's two important facts that we must not forget, and this will help you if this is your question or you're perturbed by it. First fact is this. Though the relationship fostered in life, the relationship, the deep intimacy on an emotional and spiritual level I believe, will continue, you will not be spouses in the institution of marriage in heaven. So, therefore, there will be no other spouse to be jealous of. There will be no other spouse. For there are no spouses in heaven in the sense of the marriage institution. So, though the emotional bond will continue in the relationship that was in the family will continue to exist I believe there'll be no other spouse and then the second fact is jealousy won't exist we will be perfect and if I could put it like this literally we will have the best of both worlds if you find yourself in this situation that is you'll have a more fuller relationship than you had on earth with your husband or wife and even if another husband or wife is there, jealousy or resentment will not enter in and you'll even have a perfect love towards them. I know that's idealistic for you, but that seems to be a reasonable uh, assumption that we can make, I feel, from the word of God. So remember this, whatever your perplexities are, remember we will be perfect and we will be happy. You might say, that's impossible. You're forgetting something. Nothing is impossible with God. So whatever your problem is, dear or sir, it's not a problem to God. And you will be happy there, and you will be satisfied there, and there'll be no jealousy or animosity or resentment or a feeling of being robbed. And here's the important thing in all these questions. You, you don't need to worry. It will be even better than when you had your spouse down here on earth to yourself. It's the bottom line. And there were two widows who might be here tonight who said to me, I think it was after study number five that I did them a power of good because they realized that their husbands would be perfect in heaven. <laughs> and I says, I, but you have a wee problem here. Will you be able to recognize them then? <laughs> but praise God, the Lord will make all these things right in glory. Now, the third category, which is, I think, the largest one tonight, 
are different questions that have the same answer. This is the first uh, clump of them tonight. How will we not remember the things we have done wrong? In the light of Luke 16, that's the story of a rich man and Lazarus, the rich man in hell, Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. Will we remember those who are lost? Third, will the saved in heaven see the lost in hell? These are moving and I'm not making them move. Loved ones who have died unsaved, will the memory of them be wiped from our memory? So let me give you an answer that I think covers all of these in, in, in sort of, uh, in somewhat of a way. Luke 16, the difficulty in our minds regarding memory often derives from Luke 16 and, and some other portions of Scripture that seem to indicate that the saved have some knowledge of the lost. And uh, Lazarus in Abraham's bosom seems to be aware of the rich man in hell uh, and aware of the great gulf fixed. And so we're aware of little verses like that that tend to trouble us, and yet we feel within our heart of hearts that such a knowledge would impede upon our experience of heaven. Indeed, somebody said to me over these last weeks, heaven wouldn't be heaven if I knew that my unsaved loved ones were in hell. Now, we establish this fact, and I think it is, is categorically clear, that there's no doubt that memory is a part of our humanity. It's something inbuilt in our human personality. But there ought to be, at least in our emotions, the lack of assurance that we don't want to remember anything that's bad. You understand? We, we feel that anything that's bad or a memory of it would impede upon our experience of heaven. Now, I'm quite sure tonight that we will not remember everything. Listen to that. We will not remember everything in heaven. For instance, specific sins. How will we not remember the things we have done wrong? Though we will remember, I believe, that we were sinners... We will not remember the sins that we have sinned. Now you say, how will this be? Well, God says, your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. Now if God can do that for himself, surely God can do the same for us. Does that not follow? And yet, we still have doubts perhaps at times. But if you think about it, sure, most of us have already forgotten many of our sins that we have sinned. Not the truth. None of us can remember everything that we've ever done that is wrong. So do we not think that God can do supernaturally in his wisdom what we do naturally in our ignorance? I'll repeat that. Do we not think God can do supernaturally in his wisdom what we do naturally in our ignorance? Do you not think God can cause us to remember no more our sins and our iniquities? Now, though that be the case, I'm sure regarding some areas, that the greater work of heaven regarding our memory, and I'm thinking particularly of the intermediate heaven paradise now where the dead in Christ go at this moment of time, I think the greater work about heaven is that God will enable us to see difficult things through his eyes. We'll be able to see th things from his standpoint. The way he sees them. 
Now, I don't want to expand on this too much because it's problematic. But I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 19 for a moment or two. So we're saying we're not going to remember everything. We're certainly not going to remember things that will trouble our experience of heaven and shake us in our joy and peace. But the greater work of heaven will be God will bring us to a place where he'll enable us to see things that would have been difficult for us down here on earth from his standpoint. Revelation 19, and we're reading of the fall of Babylon. After these things, verse 1, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, that's an expression of praise to God. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, more praise. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. The four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia, more praise to God. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Four times we find that expression, Alleluia. And what is it an expression in reaction to? God judging Babylon. Now listen to me. Babylon isn't some kind of impersonal non-entity. It's going to be a group of people. Human beings. But because we have been brought so perfectly into the center of God's sovereign plan of redemption and judgment in heaven, we will be in a position where we will be able, from the depths of our heart, to praise God for him judging rebellious sinners. And I know that's hard, but it's in God's word. And after all, God knows all about what's happening, the bad and the good. And the angels do, and Abraham did, and Lazarus did. And it doesn't rob their experience of heaven. That said, let me say that I, I don't think the saved in the eternal state will forever see the lost in hell. I don't think that, that is possible. And someone asked in one of the questions Jesus said to the Jews that the time will come, Luke 13, 28, that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they asked the question, when will they see and how will they see if they're lost in hell? Well, I think the sense of Luke 13, 28 is about the day of judgment. When those unbelieving Jews of Jesus' day will see others. Verse 29 of that passage talks about people coming from the north, south, east and west into the kingdom of God. And it's insinuating Gentiles. And these Jews who thought they had inherited the kingdom will see Gentiles entering it and they will be cast into hell. That's what they'll see. They'll see those who were out of the commonwealth of Israel entering the kingdom of God and they're cast out into outer darkness. That doesn't mean that when they're in the outer darkness that they'll see 
the righteous in heaven. No. Nor do I think that we will continually carry the memory of the lost in our minds in heaven. I don't think that's possible. Certainly there may be an awareness that God's wrath and God's judgment are just. But it's hard to imagine throughout the eons of eternity that we will have in our minds the memory of those whom we have loved and literally lost. I don't think that's possible. But the general point to remember is this. We will not be as we are now. And just as our resurrection bodies will be fitted with greater capacities, so will our minds. And even things that we find would be impossible for us to hold and conceive of now, we will be able to do then. And though we will not have uh, omniscience like God, we will have a completer knowledge where we'll be able to see things as never before, even as God has seen them. And so things that seem problematic, even impossible for us now, will not be then. It's important to remember that. So I hope that comes some of the way to answer that question. Here's another one someone wrote personally. As a granddad myself, I can now look back to when, as a young boy, I had a lovely relationship with my granddad. How will we relate to each other then? In other words, he related on this earth as a child to a granddad. But he's not going to do that in heaven. That's his insinuation. So how will he relate? His granddad didn't know him as a, an adult. Here's another question. After the end of time, uh, when the Lord makes all things new, though time will not end, uh, will the earth be peopled and will children be born to them? So here's another question that relates to age. And what age we will have if there is age in heaven? Children who die, another question. In childhood, will they be children in heaven? Another, will parents who have lost unborn children through miscarriages or stillborn recognize and fellowship with them in heaven. Another, what age will we be? Will we all be the same age? I'm going to give the one answer uh, to, to all these questions. The Bible does not indicate what age we will be in heaven. No way. And I don't believe that uh, it's, it's a reliable thing to take the age of our Lord when, when he went to glory as, as a guideline. There's no reason to do that. The Bible doesn't say either that we'll be the same age or whether there will be children in heaven or whether we'll all be adults in heaven. There's no indication at all. But there's two things that I think we can be sure of. And if you want to know why, get our fifth study on will we know one another in heaven. There will be recognition of each other in heaven and there will be relation with each other in heaven. Those two things we can be sure of because we have precedent for people after death appearing who are in heaven now recognized and we also know that they relate to one another because we have been made to relate to one another and there are incidents and illustrations of how they relate to one another in the Bible. Now, though we cannot know we do know that children have a special place in God's heart. And that is revealed in the scriptures. For instance, 
Matthew 18, verse 10, the Lord Jesus said, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. And there are other portions of Scripture to show that God has a special sympathy towards children. Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven and many other verses. So God is predisposed to have mercy and grace towards little children. And we must assume that that's the same with little children who have died. Now, all that being said, it does seem through the weight of Scripture that maturity and coming of age seems to fit in with the ideal of heaven. If heaven is to be the consummation of all things, it seems that maturity is the goal of what heaven will be. And in entering into what we should be and a growing to be what God intended us to be. And to give you a scriptural uh, uh, foundation for that, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First Corinthians and chapter 13. Verse 11, Paul says, When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abide a faith, hope, and charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. And so, so Paul is showing us that though we look through a glass darkly now, when we get to glory in heaven, we will see all the clearer. And though we have been children here in our understanding, up there we will be adults. Now, that doesn't mean literally an age, but it still has the idea that there is a level of maturity that will be achieved in heaven and a spiritual growth. And so development and growth will be matured in that realm. Now, because we know, and we'll touch this in a moment or two, an answer to another question, but because we know, I think it was last week, that we will be learning in heaven, it may be, because nothing's impossible with God, that God marries these two things together. Development, growth, maturity, and learning. And so it is quite possible, though we are only speculating, that children who have died down here on earth, parents may have the joy of seeing these children as children in the eternal state, but enjoying their growth and development at as they missed out in it down here on earth and seeing them come to that maturity. That may be, it's impossible to know. But one thing is sure, that whatever was cruelly lost and taken from a parent through the death of a child, that will be restored in heaven to their satisfaction. And so miscarriages that have been mentioned, and I'm led to believe there's not an authority on it, but most women have miscarriages in their life and don't even know about some of them. 
And so there are myriads of children in glory, miscarried, uh, stillborn. You imagine that I think in America every day there are 4,000 abortions and all those children we have no reason not to believe are in heaven. Whatever age they are, I don't know. But isn't it a wonderful thought that there are plenty of orphan children in glory at this moment in time, whatever maturity they have, to go around everyone. Even those who never had their own children down here on earth. And we saw in that particular study in, in week five that we will be one whole family and parental instincts that some have been robbed of in this life will be well fulfilled in the next with each other as we relate to one another in that great family of God. It's wonderful, isn't it? And so whatever questions we have of age, we will be sure that these dear children will be in glory. Now here's another question, and two questions that I'll give one answer to. You said... Animals and nature will be in heaven. No people with allergies did like that one. And maybe this will be on the new earth. So this person is subscribing. Well, I can see that uh, uh, happening on the new earth that will be created. But will it also be in heaven? Imagine they're going to try and relegate themselves in heaven and keep away from the new earth if there's too many pets down here. And so they want me to explain, do I mean that there will be animals in heaven? heaven itself and here's another question quite similar i'm unclear about the city four square that is the new jerusalem which is to come down out of heaven will we be able to live either in heaven or that city so i want to answer both these questions uh, with the one answer turn with me first of all to second Kings six seventeen. you people who don't want animals in heaven you need to look at these verses now don't forget you'll be perfect, the perfect animal lover that you've always wanted to be, but resist in your heart of hearts, you will be one day. Second Kings chapter 6, verse 17. This is one you probably never noted in this regard anyway. And Elisha, verse 17, prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee open his eyes, the eyes of Gehazi, his helper, that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountains was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Now, where did these horses come from? Do you know? Where did they come from? Heaven. There's no new earth yet. So they came from heaven. And I know they're celestial horses. But they're horses. A horse is a horse, of course. Where did they come from? They came from heaven. Now turn with me to Revelation 19 in case you think, oh, that's a strange verse. You can't build it all on that. And we're not being dogmatic, but these are the indications from Scripture. Revelation 19 and verse 11. And it's not the beast I'm talking about here. I know that's figurative. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Verse 11, I saw heaven 
opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him was faithful and true, and in righteousness he is judge and make war. Now, you're the folk that are always telling me and others that you need to take a book of Revelation literally. That's what I'm doing. And there's a horse coming out of an open heaven. And the Lord Jesus is on it. There's no problem here with thinking about uh, animals in heaven. And then Revelation 22. It's not just animals, but nature we find in heaven. Revelation 22, verse 2, in the midst of the street of it, this is the eternal state now and the new Jerusalem. On either side of the river, so there's a river there, was the tree of life, so there's a tree there. Twelve manner of fruits, so there's fruit there. Yielded fruit every month. Month, sir, by the way. Time's still there. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. If you go back to Revelation chapter 2 for just a moment, you see this tree of life in relation to heaven now. Not the eternal state, but heaven now, where the believer goes when they die now. In verse 7 of chapter 2, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, heaven now. Now, I think on our second study, where I talked about how heaven is a physical place, we looked, and I at least insinuated that I believe that what was lost in Eden was taken to heaven, that paradise of God, and that's why heaven is called paradise. And the tree of life that was in Eden is now in heaven. We have that there in Revelation 2. And that same tree of life that was in Eden, that is now in the, the heaven existing at the moment, will be in the eternal state in the new Jerusalem. So there's a tree there. And this helps to answer the next question about this city four square which is coming down out of heaven. Will we be able to live either in heaven or that city? Well, in answer to that question, remembering everything I've just said about the first question, it's not an either or. It's not will we either live in the city four square or will we live in the, the, the new earth. Because what the scripture teaches, though we, not everything's clear, of course, concerning it, is that there will be a new kind of unification of heaven and earth in the new heavens and the new earth. If you turn with me to Revelation 21, this is where we find this fact. Verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, some expositors have tried to explain that the new Jerusalem, a city four square, will hover like a satellite over the earth and will be able, like space hoppers, to move from one to the other. I don't think that at all, because God's word says that this new Jerusalem is coming down to earth. That's what it says. So that the tabernacle of God will be with men, and God will dwell with them, and he will be 
And they will be his people and he will be their God. So there's this unification, if you like, of heaven and earth. And I'm not saying the heaven of heavens will, will cease to exist or anything like that. Because Hebrews tells us the heaven where God dwells is unshakable. But what it is telling us is there will be a new unification of heaven and earth. So that the new Jerusalem will be on the earth. So it will not be, will we live in one or the other, but we will live in both. And I think there will be a certain amount of freedom for us uh, to, to live in, in either of those places and to move from one to the other. And in verse 3, we hear the voice saying that the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. So there's this joining of heaven and earth. Now, if you want another verse uh, to help you with that, turn with me to Ephesians 1. And this is a verse that indicates God's purpose in salvation ultimately Ephesians 1 so we're thinking of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and residing on earth incidentally that will mean that the garden of Eden where that tree was will be back on earth again Eden restored and remember that's God's plan not to make new things that never existed but to make old things that existed and were tainted by sin new redeemed Verse 10 of chapter 1 says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, God might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and are on earth, even in him. There it is clearly, I believe, for you. So the possibility of living both in the new heaven and the new earth is real. Now, we move on to individual specific questions in the time that's left. And we'll try to answer them. If reward in heaven is different to each individual, which we showed last week it was, how will we not be disappointed? Now I can answer this one pretty quickly. And uh, it's with an analogy that I found very helpful uh, to me. You can take a bucket down to the ocean or you can take a thimble and you can fill both of those receptacles with the ocean. The bucket and the thimble can be filled with the sea. That's the way you ought to think of God's reward in heaven. Reward is like the capacity of a bucket or a thimble. And both of them are equally filled. And whatever your reward is in heaven, all of us will be equally satisfied and will equally, in a sense, be fulfilled and joyous in that realm. But the big question is, would you rather have a bucket or a thimble? Which would you rather have? So we will be satisfied without the same reward. And yet those who have greater reward will have great satisfaction and a great capacity, a greater capacity, I believe, to enjoy heaven as their reward. Another question. Last Monday you said there might be discussion except in heaven and this individual thought it was disturbing to think people may disagree and fall out in heaven and I, I did say last week and I, I think it's true that though we will be perfect in a moral sense in heaven there's nothing to suggest that we will know everything in heaven indeed Revelation 6 and verse 10 where the martyrs are under the altar there they're crying to God how long uh, until you avenge uh, our souls. 
And that infers that they didn't know how long that God was going to take to judge the earth. So we don't know everything in heaven. Whilst we have a clearer and more perfect knowledge and see face to face, it is not absolute because omniscience all knowledge is a divine attribute. But the mistake we make, and again I'm going over old ground but it's necessary, uh, is we think that not knowing everything is a flaw. That not knowing everything is a flaw. It is not a flaw. It's like memory. It's something that is human because God is the only one that knows everything. Now if we're entering into a new heaven and a new earth and there's no reason not to believe that there will be all sorts of new phenomena in that realm that we have never seen in this realm we have much to learn about and the scripture does indicate clearly that we will in eternity learn more about God and more about his grace let me remind you of Ephesians 2 if you care to turn to it in verse 6 God hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And that word I taught you, show, means reveal. So there's going to be a progressive revelation right throughout eternity where God will reveal to us more and more about the wonder of the plan of redemption and the great glories and wonders of God and the person of Christ so that we will enter more into the, the knowledge of the height and the length and the depth and the breadth of the love of God. And because God is greater than all eternity, learning of God and learning of his grace will exhaust all the time and all the energies that we will care to engage in the pleasure that God intends in learning. So I think it's very clear that we will learn in heaven. Intellectual curiosity is not part of the curse. The devil didn't teach us to think or work, or learn. And the perfect man, the Lord Jesus, the perfect man, learned and grew in knowledge. And so the question I pose just for you to think, just for you to think, is do you think in heaven everybody will walk around like robots, knowing everything there is to know, and will never have discussions and we'll never reason or we'll never debate. Now, I don't mean debate in a negative sense where people are losing their head and walking away. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about deliberation. Now, I think it's obvious that deliberation, reasoning, is part of the process of learning. I'm not talking here about moral issues. We'll know right from wrong and we'll know God's truth. But as God... God causes us to enter into the depths of his truth and the depths of this wonderful universe that is around us, will we not be asking questions? Now, when you and I learn in this scene, we ask questions of ourselves. And we say to ourselves, uh, what does this do? Or how does this work? Or what does that mean? And if we ask those questions of ourselves down here and we're going to be exposed to a whole realm that we have never known here and will not have all knowledge up there, does it not follow that we might ask those questions? Boy, I wonder how many solar systems there is in this new heaven and the new earth. You think you'll just know like that? Or isn't the tree of life? How did God make all these things so beautiful? 
And as God reveals more and more to us, as we have been looking at even in these weeks, the more questions you have, and if we ask those questions of ourselves in the process of learning and reasoning, what then is there to stop us asking them of each other? And I'll ask Jim here, if he gets there in the end, I'll ask him, I'll ask him, what do you think of that? And he'll tell me all the answers. But there's nothing wrong with it. And it will be part of the joy of, of learning. Here's where our mental block is. And I said this last week. We make the mistake of thinking that unity is uniformity. And because we have never learned the lesson down here of learning what it is to discuss things and not fall out, we think it's impossible to do it up there. But it's not. We'll be perfect and we'll not fall out. And wonderful, wonderful that if two of us are discussing something in heaven and we don't know the answer, we'll have the Lord. And he'll have the answer. Now here's another question. And we're nearly finished. Could you lay out the schedule of events referring to the following? We die in Christ present with the Lord. The dead in Christ shall rise first and then those who remain will be caught up with him in the air. What part do we take if we are in heaven? And I think the thought is, and I'm reading a bit behind uh, this question, that the person is saying, if we are already in heaven and the dead in Christ rise first, well, how does that, that happen? And I think... Uh, to follow the process of thought here, if we die now as a believer, our souls go to be with the Lord. Second Corinthians 5, he had absent from the body, present with the Lord. Uh, Philippians 1, to die is to be with Christ, which is far better. And then First Thessalonians 4 tells us that the dead in Christ, when Jesus comes again, will rise first, and then we that are alive and Christian will be caught up. And First Corinthians 15 talks about the translation of the saints when they rise at the last trump and the incorruptible puts on, or the corruption puts on incorruption and we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye and this mortal must put on immortality. Now, the only reasonable way to reconcile these two clear biblical facts is that God will unite body that is in the earth and soul that is in heaven together as he raises the dead bodies of believers and translates them. God's going to unite the whole man, and that is the resurrection plan. The final question, you'll be glad to know, well, the final one for tonight anyway, is will we have, and this is my favorite question out of them all, whoever gave this one, I like this one, will we have the opportunity to spend one-to-one -one time with our Heavenly Father, Savior, and Holy Spirit, either collectively or separately, just to sit alone and commune with them. That's what heaven's all about. Uh, God is spirit, and the Holy Spirit is spirit. So the Father and the Holy Spirit are invisible, non-tangible. But we said that we will see God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so through the Son, as now we will know the Father and we will worship the Godhead, both collectively 
and individually. Now, don't ask me to explain the logistics of this because obviously there will be so many Christians there, a great company that no man can number, but don't worry about it. Uh, we'll be there for all eternity and there'll be plenty of time to commune with the Lord, though I know that it's hard to imagine. But Revelation 21 3 says, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. We read it. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. And the implication of that is communion, fellowship, relationship. So it will be there. And it might be that it will be there with all of us at all of the time, at every place, every opportunity. Revelation 22 verse 4. And they shall see his face, talking about fellowship, and his name shall be in their foreheads. I don't know how it will happen or how it can happen, but it will happen. But here's a thing that came very forcibly to me in answer to this question. In a very true and literal sense, to spend one-to-one -one time with our Heavenly Father, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit is an opportunity and a privilege we have now. Do we take it? Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now. Can I leave you as I close with a quote? And out of many of the quotes that I have read in my life, this has been one that has been most instrumental. It is John Owen, that great Puritan, in his book, The Glory of Christ, and I've quoted to you in my introduction and along the way, but it's profound, and if you miss it, you will miss heaven. No man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight in heaven who does not in some measure behold it by faith in this world. No man or woman shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight in heaven who does not by faith in some measure behold it in this world. Do you see Jesus? Is the author and finisher of your faith. Whom having not seen, do you love him? Will you be with him in heaven? I was with a dear man before I came here tonight. And soon he will behold his face in all its beauty. He's dying. There's no cure for him. Soon he's going to be with Christ. Will that be your experience? Can be. Only through Jesus. Father, we thank you tonight for Jesus' blood and righteousness, for the solid ground on which we build our house. And we know that when the storm of judgment comes upon this world, that because we are built on the rock, the word of Christ, we shall endure and endure unto the end. And even the gates of hell 
will not prevail against his church. Thank you, Lord, for salvation. Thank you for the certainty of heaven. And, Lord, we thank you that one day we will be in glory and we shall see the King in all his beauty. Lord, if there's one soul here tonight without such hope, arrest them in Jesus' name and save them. And from this day on, our Father, let us have a view of heaven that keeps us going down here on earth as we give you thanks for everything. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen.